This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A state Democratic lawmaker is defending a controversial social media statement about law enforcement. Representative Brian Clancy, a Democrat out of Milwaukee, is standing by his comments that police work has no dignity or value. Clancy emphasized the classist and racist nature of policing in a recent interview with the Wisconsin Examiner, and he highlighted a common line from the defund the police movement that investment in other programs would better help reduce crime. Clancy's comments have received national attention, with Fox News running a story about him earlier this month. Republican lawmakers have also called the comments clueless and disheartening. Wisconsin is one of four states that do not have a tax-free savings account for people with disabilities. The accounts, called ABLE accounts, are commonplace around the country, but have a participation rate below 1% in Wisconsin, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. ABLE accounts are used by people with disabilities to save money without jeopardizing their access to benefits like Medicaid and Supplemental Security Income. A new law to establish Wisconsin's participation in the ABLE program has passed the state Senate, but has not yet been voted on by the Assembly. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced today that it was awarding the Reedsburg Utility Commission $28 million. That money is meant to go towards providing residents with high-speed internet as part of the Reconnect Loan Program. The money comes as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed in 2021 and spends more than $500 billion. Recently, the Biden administration has been touting their work on providing internet to rural areas, with Vice President Kamala Harris visiting the state to talk about their initiatives. Three Dane County supervisors resigned last week, leaving the Dane County board now 8% unrepresented. In a joint statement issued last Friday, the three supervisors did not explain their reasons for leaving, reports the Capital Times. The seats will need to be filled by interim supervisors until next spring's elections. And for consideration to be a temporary appointee, just fill out the proper paperwork. That's a declaration of candidacy and appointment papers with at least 25 signatures from the district. All that's due by next week Friday, September 1st. Public hearings to pick the next temporary appointee for each district are scheduled for the first week of September. The Dane County Parks Department is considering a proposal that would make the cost of reserving a park shelter a flat rate, no matter the shelter size. The move would increase the fee for reserving a shelter significant. The move would increase the fee significantly for reserving smaller shelters, nearly doubling them to a flat rate of $155, according to reporting from Isthmus newspaper. The department defended the proposal since the amount of work it takes to prepare a shelter is not dependent on the shelter's size. The proposal will be presented for public feedback at a September 6th public hearing. Madison could see its hottest day in a decade this week, city officials and meteorologists are warning. Temperatures are likely to be in the 90s and could top out above the 100-degree Fahrenheit mark. The National Weather Service has issued a series of warnings and advisories this week, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. An excessive heat warning will be in effect tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m., and an excessive heat watch will be in effect on Thursday from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Wisconsin's hottest point in history was 114 degrees in the Wisconsin Dells in 1936. The last time Madison topped out above 100 degrees was in July 2012. Meanwhile, the State Department of Transportation is warning that the extreme heat could lead to possible pavement buckling on the roads. 
That's because pavement slabs can expand and push against each other under hot conditions. So slow down and focus on the road. And if you see a serious bump or dip, report it by calling 911. Vision Zero, a strategy implemented by the City of Madison to eliminate traffic deaths and severe injuries, is continuing its rollout to local roads. Several city streets will see their speed limit reduced in the month of August, with changes coming to Whitney Way, Maple Grove Drive, and North Thompson Drive, among others. And now for today's top stories. Madison's water pipes are getting leakier, and while new technology has helped identify higher concentrations of water loss, old piping is to blame. WORT reporter Charlie Bielowski and producer Nate Carlin took a look at where the water beneath our feet is going. In 2022, the Madison Water Utility lost about 1.23 billion gallons of water to leaks. That's about 13.5% of the total water used in the city. In tangible terms, that's about 7 gallons a day for a 10-foot length of water main. Last year was slightly above an average of 1.14 billion gallons of water, or 12% of the total water flow lost each year for the past quarter century. That's all according to an analysis from a UW-Madison engineering student that will be presented to the Madison Water Utility tomorrow. Those numbers come even as the total water usage is on the decline due to the loss of large food processing plants and a general decrease among residents. A majority of water loss is caused by aging pipes, which the Madison Water Utility is working to replace, averaging about five miles of pipeline replaced each year. For every mile replaced, an estimated 1.7 million gallons of water loss will be prevented. But in a system with more than 900 miles of water piping, the amount of water leaking has been slowly increasing. Marcus Pearson, spokesperson for the Madison Water Utility, says the main concern around old pipes is their cost to repair. The water loss is not necessarily the issue. It really just comes down to more of a a cost issue. When we have five or six main leaks in the same exact area, that's really what we're thinking about, not the water that's lost, really the the operation side of things and the cost of it. The utility often faces a choice when dealing with old pipes, a quicker patch that gets the job done, or a more costly replacement that is a more permanent solution. The cost-benefit analysis uh, of replacing pipes, you know, that's really something you think about. How many times have we been out there to patch it up, so to speak, in the last year, maybe five or six times? So when you get up to that point where you have pipes that are over 140 years old, literally, then it's, it's probably time to, to really replace that, especially as the city is expanding, growing. And those water leaks aren't evenly distributed. Some parts of the city get more leaks than others, sometimes at more than double the rate. And generally, there are more leaks in the winter. The report recommends installing pressure sensors throughout the water main network to better understand these variations. Madison is not alone among the Midwest cities in having a leaky water system. Pearson says many cities in the region are struggling to replace old water systems installed more than 50 years ago. Most older cities, especially ones that are around the Great Lakes and things like that, just have older infrastructure. Um, That's just the way it was, and especially during World War II, where there was a lot of factory work, things like that, and cities like that. So some of the older industrial cities definitely are experiencing, I would imagine, even worse rate of water loss. Nine cents of each dollar collected by Madison Water goes to infrastructure improvements. In recent years, the water utility has had to apply for rate increases to keep afloat especially after major customers Oscar Mayer and Bimbo Bakery left the city. Add to that the operating cost increases and the need to invest in new facilities, and water rates for the average Madison household have nearly doubled in the last 10 years. 
The Water Utility Board meets tomorrow at 4.30 p.m. at the Water Utility Engineering Building at 119 East Olin Avenue, where they'll hear the full presentation. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bielowski. Producer Nate Carlin co-reported this story. Late last week, a Wisconsin drywall contractor was sentenced to prison in a tax fraud case. Union officials say his actions point to ongoing exploitation of marginalized construction workers, and they hope government agencies take on more of these cases. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Construction union leaders in the Midwest hope law enforcement and other entities take notice of the outcome of a tax evasion case involving a Wisconsin drywall contractor. Last week, Gustavo Reyes was sentenced to 18 months in prison after pleading guilty to tax evasion charges. The Department of Justice says Reyes has more than a half a million dollars in unpaid taxes. Rob Kale of the Construction Business Group says it goes beyond hiding income from the IRS. Reyes was considered a labor broker who served as a middleman between larger project contractors and those hired to work on sites. Kale notes that Reyes's actions align with bad actors in the industry. In the facts of this case, what they do is, is they'll just create multiple LLCs to keep evading tax collection. They will label every single person working for them who clearly are their employees, but they'll label them all as independent contractors. He says workers become exploited in the process because they're paid in cash and are excluded from full wages and benefits like workers' compensation. And many are migrant workers fearful of speaking up. Unions say payroll fraud convictions for the trades are rare in Wisconsin. Kale acknowledges not all agencies have investigative resources, but he hopes the sentencing creates more awareness. Bert Johnson of the North Central State's Regional Council of Carpenters says the outcome should serve as a wake-up call to the industry as well. He says it underscores the concerns organizations like his have been calling attention to. The people at the very top making decisions about how the workers are going to be treated on their projects, those are the people who need to pay attention to this case. Cal says it's not just the workers who suffer. He says firms that follow the rules are outbid for projects, while also noting that taxpayers eventually feel the pain. What ends up happening is the rest of us as taxpayers are picking up those bills when workers get injured because obviously they need medical care. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. John McCracken is a Wisconsin journalist who focuses mainly on agriculture, climate change, and industrial pollution. A former Midwest reporting fellow for Grist, he won a 2022 SEAL Environmental Journalism Award. His recent article, published in Tone Madison, explores how the state's largest power company lobbies legislature, legislatures to stall a transition to clean energy. He sat down with WORT producer Nate Carlin earlier this afternoon. What is preemption and, and why does it matter? Uh, yeah, I mean, preemption is a really interesting way that lawmakers can hedge bet, so to speak, about what they want being in the state level or county level, et cetera, just depending. But for, for Wisconsin, um, preemption, we have a lot of preemption that state lawmakers have passed uh, laws that say small municipalities at the local level can't do X, Y, Z. That's them, you know, preempting. Potentially, most of the times it's like a national trend. Maybe other states are doing a certain thing. Um, you know, for the instance of my story, it's when states and cities across the country started to look at banning new 
hookups of like natural gas or other fossil fuel based energy sources that was an opportunity for Wisconsin legislators to preempt that to sort of stop that that's what the the goal was preemption was to stop that from actually hitting the books in Wisconsin if it had passed a city would have been able to say we don't want new construction within city limits to have natural gas hookups or coal power things you know dirty dirty fuel fossil fuel based energy sources and uh, who is WEC energy and how do they fit in the picture yeah, so WC Energy, they're a really, really big energy company in the nation. They have over 4 million customers, um, a lot of them in the Midwest, but not exclusively the Midwest. They are the eighth largest supplier of natural gas in the country, and they're the largest power company in, in the state. So they own We Energies and Wisconsin Public Service Corporation, so We Energies and Wisconsin Public Service Corporation. Uh, in, in Madison, Madison doesn't really have a big footprint with either of those companies, given Madison Gas and Electric and Alliant Energy kind of having the, the big footprint of utility services in Madison and Dane County. But pretty much the rest of the state is going to be something that is owned by WECE Energy. And what is their, their history of lobbying? Yeah, you know, just based on like the state's lobbying records, they tend to lobby for things that continue the way that energy is already operating in the state. They're not particularly trying to get to a sort of decarbonization very fast and their lobbying efforts show that. Like in, in the example of the story with Tone, they lobbied, you know, they're just in communication with state lawmakers that were circulating bills about preempting local decisions that would stop natural gas hookups or other fossil fuel sourced energy. And WEC Energy is supportive of that. In their words, they say that they want choice. They want people to have customers be able to make their own energy choices, be it from solar panels on roofs or gas stoves make dinner. WEC Energy, they, they do support and have big investments in like solar energy in, in the state of Wisconsin and, and elsewhere, but they also are still heavily invested in natural gas and operating natural gas plants here in, here in the state. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? I feel like one of the interesting aspects of your article was the sort of this tension of them investing in solar energy and at the same time sort of lobbying for the status quo when it comes to fossil fuels. So how do, how do you see that, those two forces in, in conversation? It's really interesting. You know, I think in, in looking at sort of what's happened across the country in, in this sort of sector, that seems to be the case for a lot of utilities. Utilities, they've been doing this for, for decades. You know, they, they own the infrastructure. They own the things that, you know, the, the machinery and all the refining and the all of this to make sure the lights come on. And we are now seeing that our energy sources are not sustainable. So they have been doing this for, for decades and they have all of the physical infrastructure across the country, across the state of Wisconsin when it comes to WIC energy. It's like a lot of business a lot of industries, they see that consumers want green solutions and decarbonization, but at the same time, they're focused on the bottom line and they're focused on continuing to make company owners and et cetera happy with profits and, and whatnot. So there, there definitely is a tension when it comes to you know investing in solar and investing in, in natural gas at the same time. You know, it's not likely that a place like a utility would just 
overnight divest all of their natural gas and then pump all of their money and funding into wind or solar, but it doesn't seem to be quickening. There's a really interesting case in New England. So a utility called Eversource, which is based out of Boston and a large energy provider in, in New England, they left the American Gas Association, which is a big lobbying group, a big sort of industry group that, oh, it's in the name, their American Gas Association, they want to keep natural gas. They want to keep pushing it. But this utility in New England, a few weeks back, they actually, they left the association and they specifically cited that the association is not interested in decarbonizing as fast as they need to be. And this utility is an outlier in the utility sector across the country of going, we want to decarbonize fast. These plans aren't working. And, and it's interesting when it comes to WIC, uh, WEC Energy, that they invest in solar, but they've also, at least one example I know of, they've pushed back shuttering coal plant here, even in Wisconsin. I know that in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, there have been plans to shut down a coal power plant, but the goalposts keep getting moved back. I mean, the Oak Creek coal power plant is owned by We Energies, which is part of the WIC Energy Group. So it's an interesting place that utilities are at. But as I said in the beginning there, utilities do have the option to move away from the path and decide to go on their go on their own and set goals of faster decarbonization. And as we saw in New England. How does WIC's history of rate hikes uh, factor into this? Or what is their history of rate hikes? Yeah, I mean, right now they increased prices for both We Energy and Wisconsin Public Service Corporation. And it's an interesting thing because when it, when it comes to rate hikes, they raise the prices, but then they're also at the same time lobbying to keep the status quo, which, you know, there's been some research that points to this sort of cyclical nature of if you increase the prices, you fund your lobbying and communication or even like fund the investment and expansion of your operation as it relates to fossil fuels. And then the burning of the fossil fuels and, and whatnot exacerbate things, the infrastructure, it's older infrastructure that they're using, and then that causes them to need to raise prices again. So there's a weird loop that can happen when duck and just raising rates and but at the same time picking with fossil fuel based energies not to say that clean energy is free comes to wick they've they've said before that they need to raise rates to spend and invest in large-scale solar projects it is sort of a an interesting dynamic that that these utilities are in when they're raising prices but keeping lobbying and investing and in, in lobbying and investing in fossil fuel energy there's Research that kind of directly links increased rate hikes with lobbying efforts as well. Yeah, it does seem like, I mean, these coal plants especially, they're they're old. They keep kind of yeah, keeping them open for year after year. It seems, it seems like an odd state. Yeah, and you know, that again, that relates to the investment and the status quo despite everything that we know about coal and natural gas pollution and its, its effects on climate and just the environment and public health, coal and natural gas. Wisconsin still gets like, the majority of its fuel source for the state comes from coal and natural gas. And we aren't really making a lot of like fast progress when it comes to getting to goal, like getting 
getting to a level of net zero or decarbonizing or whatever sort of different goals that people are looking at as, as it relates to that. There are definitely other states around us that have done pretty good jobs. Illinois has, has done a, a pretty good job of making and pushing that. Illinois as like a, a body, like the governor in Illinois, they've done a pretty good job when it comes to the politics of the situation to sort of push the issue. Wisconsin and a lot of other states in the Midwest and in the country, like we just have a, a long history of investing in and operating coal and natural gas. It's a big change to make that, but we're not making a lot of fast progress. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to transition. To how does the PSC fit into this picture? And who are the PSC? Yeah, so the PSC, they're an appointed agency in the state of Wisconsin that they approve things like rate hikes. They deal with the state utilities. They're the, the agency of the state government that deals with public utilities, just as like the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, would deal with hunting and fishing and water pollution and things like that. Um, they're dealing with all the things that go into keeping utilities running, keeping energy, getting people's houses. They set up things like like approving rate hikes or in, in Wisconsin when we have horribly cold winters, they're involved with the moratorium on shutoffs for heat shutoffs in the winter. Yeah, so when, when it comes to their relationship to this story here, when, when I, I spoke with the folks at the Energy and Policy Institute, who they're a, a watchdog utility organization that they kind of monitor utilities and public utilities, energy companies across the country. And they said that it's, it's very similar, but here in Wisconsin, we have sort of a revolving door of someone being like a higher up at the agency, leaving to enter the private sector and becoming like a lobbyist for someone in the private sector and then having a lot of close ties to their former colleagues or just knowing how the state government logistics and politics and lobbying, how all that works. The, the example in my story that we pointed out is that Ellen Nowak, um, she's a former PSC commissioner, recently left the position and is now with a, a subsidy of WIC Energy as a executive. In that position, she is working, doing like government government relations and um, lobbying efforts and things like that. And she herself has a, a history of not being a big proponent of decarbonization um, and not wanting to really push the issue of, yeah, not, not really wanting to push the issue of, of clean energy and getting away from coal and natural gas. And then, you know, that's someone who was just in a position of power at this state agency who is now in the private sector doing private sector things. It gets very ambiguous and sort of blurred lines of who is looking out for consumers, Wisconsin residents that pay those rate hikes and pay those bills every month or whatnot, and also Wisconsin residents that deal with the effects of fossil fuel pollution, be it from source pollution, living next to a coal plant in, in Oak Creek, or just how a change in climate is affecting the, the folks of Wisconsin. Amidst a hectic farmer's market on the square this Saturday, you may have also seen a protest as a group of young people marched from the state capitol to the Department of Natural Resources on Saturday. They were there with one clear demand, shut down Line 5. Greg Jaboski has more. Shut down Line 5! Shut down Line 5! Shut down Line 5! On Saturday... A lively crowd of young people and community supporters gathered in Madison's Capitol Square during the busy weekly farmer's market with the demand for the state's Department of Natural Resources, the DNR, shut down Line 5, the oil pipeline that in part runs through northern Wisconsin. 
Marco Marquez is the Milwaukee-based Wisconsin State Director for the National Organization Action for the Climate Emergency, or ACE, which, according to Marquez, trains high school and college students for environmental activism such as Saturday's Action. So why are people out here today? Young people and environmentalists and anyone who care about clean water and the planet are here because we're, we want the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources to shut down the Line 5 pipeline. Tell us about, uh, about Line 5. Why do you want to shut down? What is it and why do you, why do you want to shut down? Line 5 pumps 22.6 million gallons of oil through our state every single day. And it also goes underwater through Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. Um, and it goes through Native American land. It goes through the Bad River Band of Greater Chippewa Indians. It goes through their land. Um, and this, this pipeline has spilled multiple times over its 70-year lifetime. And Enbridge, the company responsible, was responsible for the largest oil, inland oil spill in U.S. history, which happened in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 2010. We don't want Wisconsin to be next. We want to protect our Great Lakes. We want to protect our Native Americans. And we want to protect our future and make sure that our young people have a future to, to look forward to. And where does this oil come from and where does it go to? The oil starts in Alberta, Canada. It goes through Minnesota via Line 3. Then it goes through Superior, Wisconsin, where it becomes Line 5. And then it goes uh, all the way across northern Wisconsin through the Straits of Mackinac uh, underwater and ends up in Michigan. None of this oil is used for gasoline. So th shutting down this pipeline will not affect gas prices. And in fact, none of this oil is used for any energy here in Wisconsin. So we're putting our lives at risk, our state at risk, and our water at risk for something we don't even use. You're here today. You're going to go to the DNR. What, what, are you going to, uh, what demands are you going to make of the, of the Wisconsin DNR? So we know that Enbridge is a fossil fuel company and all they care about is their bottom line. We're here to tell the DNR that you have the ability. They have the ability to say no to the reroute permits for this pipeline. And if they say, if they say yes, that this pipeline can go through, then they're gonna tell us that they don't care about people uh, any more than Enbridge does, that they're gonna care more about profits than, than they do people. It's up to them. They have the opportunity right now to shut this pipeline down for good. Chanting and carrying banners, the group of about 50 marched to the entrance to the DNR offices on South Webster Street. Four young people spoke there. Amira Harris, a 17-year-old Ho-Chunk and Menominee Native American, had this to say. I want to make this very clear for all of you fossil fuel executives who care more about oil and money than you do about the planet. Native land and people should not be sacrificed for oil pipelines. 18-year-old Jariel Ramos, the ACE team lead at Pius 11th High School in Milwaukee, had this message for the DNR. The Wisconsin DNR has everything they need to understand this 70-year-old pipeline is dangerous. I already know that fossil fuel companies don't care about human beings, but if the Wisconsin DNR says yes to this pipeline, they'll be telling all of us that they don't care. So I am here today, channeling the power of my ancestors and the voices of my fellow youth, Wisconsin DNR, do the right thing. We are urging you, demanding you, and begging you to shut down the Line 5 pipeline. Isaac Drangsfeit of Wanaki High School, who also spoke Saturday, gave this info on the Dane County Youth Environmental Committee, of which he is a part, and explained how youth can become involved. So many of our students um, have created things that are called sustainability committees on their towns or their villages or their cities, like the city of Middleton. Um, they just recently created a sustainability committee, which we have a member that sits on. We have a member that sits on the, on the Madison's 
a sustainability committee. We have a member that sits on the Stoughton. I sit on the um, school board of Wanakee every once in a while um, for my student council and relate to environmental issues. So we do lots of outreach to many different cities, keeping just sort of um, helping others that need to start those types of things and just get involved. That was Isaac Brangsfeit of Wanakee, one of the young people taking action on Saturday in front of the DNR offices, demanding the shutdown of Line 5. For more information on the organizations involved in Saturday's action, or for young people who want to get involved with them, the web address for ACE is acespace.org. That's A-C-E-S-P-A-C-E.org. And the Dane County Youth Environmental Committee is dcyec.org. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jaboski. On Mondays, we come to you with a look ahead at what's before local government for the week ahead. On this week's edition of Forward Lookout, it's chainsaws, parking lots, and so much more. Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com sits down with fill-in extraordinaire Sholly Pittman. It's Monday, and that means it's time for your week ahead in local government. We call it Forward Lookout. Dylan Brogan is away this week, but on the line with me is Brenda Conkle, author of ForwardLookout.com. Hey, Brenda. Hey, how's it going? It's going okay. Well, let's get started because there's a lot happening this week. On the county level, a little more newly vacant than it was last Monday with three supervisors resigning last week. Earlier today, the Alliant Energy Center Redevelopment Committee met at 1130. But moving on to Tuesday at 9 a.m., the Land Information Council is meeting. They'll be talking about Fly Dane. Tell us more, Brenda. Yeah, so they'll be looking at um, how that project is going and then what the impacts that we'll have for the 2024 uh, budget. It's a partnership that allows agencies to pool their resources for periodic updates of pictures from the sky. <laughs> That's the easier way to say it. Um, but they're going to be looking at that and how they can, they'll be, um, that might impact the budget. And then at five o'clock, this CDBG is meeting with no agenda posted. So we'll move on to 5.30 p.m. The PPNJ, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, is meeting and they have a slate of funding items to talk about. Yep. They have um, some funding for uh, reunification training for Safe Neighborhoods Project, as well as the Justice Reform Initiatives. And then they'll be getting a presentation from um, about domestic violence. And they will also be getting an update on jail residents experiencing housing insecurity and how to make them eligible for electronic monitoring. They must have put out an RFP because they'll be looking at the RFP responses as well. And then at 5.30 p.m. on the county level on Tuesday, the Public Works and Transportation Committee is having a hybrid meeting. And it looks like airport workers might be getting a one-time raise, stipend. Yeah, that that was interesting. It looks like they've got some unused COVID-19 emergency leave funds that they're going to spend and and give stipends to each of the employees. So that's an interesting use of funds. Um, They'll also be looking at some HVAC upgrades and some other um, items that are pretty routine, but then they'll also be getting an update from the Waste and Renewables staff folks, and they'll be getting a presentation about PFAS and landfills. And then on Wednesday, 5.30, the Park Commission is meeting in Middleton. Yes, and they are buying more land again. Um, So they're looking at land in the town of Verona and the town of Montrose for the Sugar River Wildlife Area. 
and then they will be getting a donation for this sounded interesting to me chainsaw workshop for women um so they'll be uh looking at um some funds that were donated for that and then they'll be getting a presentation they since they will be at the heritage center um they'll be looking at uh, the history of Mendona County Park, the Heritage Center private rental transition, and then the Mendona County Park improvement project update. Um, and then they will also be looking at potential changes to the park fees. And that chainsaw workshop also comes up the following day. And by the way, it's a program for women and non-binary parks volunteers to feel more comfortable doing volunteer parks work. But that takes us to Thursday at 1215. The Community Justice Council first has a hybrid meeting and they'll be talking about all sorts of essential tools. Yes, they have. um, They did a survey um, of people with lived experience. I'm assuming lived experience with the criminal justice uh, system. And then they will also be getting a presentation about the Harvard Government Performance Lab, and that will be from the 911 folks. And then they will also be looking at some of the tools that they have to make sure that they're able to track things and then also looking at their strategic plan. And then at 5.30 on Thursday on the county level, uh, the Environmental, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee is meeting in a hybrid meeting, and the chainsaw workshops will also pop up there. Moving along to the city, uh, let's start with tomorrow at 4.30 p.m., that's Tuesday, the Water Utility Board is getting a presentation about uh, leaky water. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a UW graduate research student that is going to be giving them some information. Um, I think the water utility does a good job of using uh, UW students for lots of different research projects. So they'll be getting that report. And then they're also going to be looking at uh, Crowley Station, which is down by uh, Law Park, kind of overlooking the lake there. They're looking at how they're going to turn that into a park space. Um, that's basically there's water utility infrastructure underneath it, and there's a space up above that they're going to be using as a park. And then there's a whole bunch of reports. Folks who pay attention, um, there's the water protection report, the financial conditions report, and uh, their monthly operations report. Also on the city level, this isn't an official city meeting, but I thought it might be a good place to mention it. The Brayton Lot development right near the Capitol there where there's temporarily staging bus rapid transit that is maybe getting redeveloped into, I don't know, housing or something. And so an in-person meeting on Tuesday at 7 p.m. is scheduled at the Madison Municipal Building in room 215. And then a virtual meeting on Wednesday at noon is also scheduled for Brayton Lot Development. Brenda, any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, I have thoughts on that. I live just a block away, and I swear, I went to a meeting 25 years ago about this lot, and they did a whole plan at that time about how they wanted to see it develop. So it'd be real interesting if that plan is even considered at this point and uh, what new ideas people may have come up with. But um, along the many years, it's been potentially uh, the the public market could have gone there. There's been all kinds of ideas. So hopefully maybe this time something will stick. Mm, Maybe it's cursed. Uh, But that takes us into Wednesday on the city level at 2 p.m. The Greater Madison Metropolitan Planning Organization, or MPO, the Greater Madison MPO, has a coordinating meeting. And they'll be, you know, they're responsible for all sorts of kind of federal funding for local transportation projects. Um, What are they looking at here? Yeah, you know, normally I would, we might, this might be a meeting that we skip. But this time they're going to be looking at the TIP. And uh, people may not know what that is, but it's the Transportation Improvement Plan. And in order 
order for projects to get funded by the federal government, they have to be in this particular plan. So they're doing the plan for 2024 through 2028. And so this is where you want to make sure that there's any projects that you really want to make sure get done, that they get into that project. So it's, it's worth talking about. They're also going to be looking at their work plan for 2024, as well as looking at the MPO urban area boundary districts. And so that can change how people get their utilities and all kinds of other things. And then at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, the Lake Monona Waterfront Ad Hoc Committee, which is really moving forward with this design from Sasaski, looking at more revisions to the plan. Tell us where we are with that. Brenda. Yeah, their, their agendas are usually pretty vague. It just says review and discussion of the master plan revisions. Um, so I'm not sure there's no attachments or anything there. Um, and then they'll be looking at their committee work plan and how they're going to continue speeding forward as they are. And then that takes us to Thursday on the city level at 5 p.m. The Disability Rights Commission is meeting, uh, also looking at how to make the Lake Monona waterfront accessible. Um, any more things you want to highlight there? Yeah, and they also have a home health care work group looking at the the severe shortage of um, employees in the healthcare industry, especially for home health care. And so uh, they'll be getting an update on that as well. And then at 5 p.m., the civilian, uh, the Police Civilian Oversight Review Board is meeting and they'll get an update from the independent monitor eight months into his job. Yep, they'll be doing that. And then they'll also be looking at how they can do some outreach to youth. Um, to get their voices heard in this process. They'll also be looking at the initial planning process for any of their future trainings that they might have for the group. And then um, they'll be planning to meet in person in October. All right. Well, we're running out of time to talk about the Police Civilian Oversight Board, which meets at 5 o'clock on Thursday as well, with an additional subcommittee at 8 o'clock on Thursday, and a Police Civilian Oversight Board Complaint Process Subcommittee meeting on Friday virtually. But you can check out those online instead at forwardlookout.com along with all Dane County and Madison agendas and meeting times and what's happening this week ahead in local government. She's Brenda Conkle. I'm Sholly Pittman. This is Forward Lookout. This Thursday, August 21st, 4th, is the anniversary of the birth of radical scholar, activist, author, playwright, and public intellectual Howard Zinn. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has more. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Thursday, August 24th, is the anniversary of the birth of Howard Zinn, a radical scholar, activist, author, playwright, and public intellectual. He was born in 1922. Zinn wrote A People's History of the United States, published in 1980, and a biography called You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, and a number of other important books and many articles over the years. Zinn told history not from the usual viewpoint of the wealthy and privileged, but from the grassroots, from the people's point of view. Zinn also remained close to primary sources. For example, the first 22 pages of his People's History tells you all you'll ever need to know about Christopher Columbus, using his own journals. Bartolome de la Casas, Columbus's transcriber, details the cruelty, enslavement, and murder of the indigenous people by Columbus and his men. Zinn allows Columbus to be eloquently taken down by his own words. Indigenous voices had been telling this story for decades, but Zinn was able to get a wider audience for these historical truths. 
Zen grew up in the slums of Brooklyn in the 30s, the Great Depression. Both his parents were Jewish immigrants to the U.S. When he was 17, Zen became interested in world politics. It was 1939, and he was reading about the Nazis at the start of World War II. He was arguing politics with some young Communist Party members on the street corner. They disagreed about some things, like the Russian invasion of Finland, but agreed on much else. They were furiously anti-fascist and courageous. He had seen them standing up to the local cops, who tried to stop them from distributing leaflets and holding discussions. One day, the local communists asked Zinn to come to a demo in Times Square and help carry a banner. But when the police broke up the demonstration, they knocked Zinn unconscious. He awoke with a painful lump on his head, and he said, I realized those young communists were right. The state and its police were not neutral referees in a society of contending interests. They were on the side of the rich and powerful. From that moment on, I was no longer a liberal, a believer in the self-correcting nature of American society. I was a radical, believing that something fundamental was wrong with the country. A year later, Zinn aced a civil service exam to get a job in the naval shipyard. He was paid for $14.40 a week. He gave $10 to his desperately poor parents and kept the rest for lunch and spending money. It was a good wage, but the work was hard and dangerous. Zen formed a union with 300 other apprentices. He made friends with other radical workers. They formed a weekly reading group. They read books on politics, economics, and socialism. But Zen decided he wanted to fight the fascists directly and enlisted in the Army Air Corps, where he became a bombardier. This changed him. An Army associate influenced him to question the aims of the Allies. Were they really anti-fascist and democratic? His friend gave him a book, The Yogi and the Commissar, by Arthur Kostler, who had been a communist and fought in Spain. The book exposed deep flaws in the Soviet Union, but Zinn's disillusionment with the USSR didn't diminish his belief in socialism. Zinn went to college on the GI Bill and worked nights. He was hired to be chair of the history department at Spelman College, a historically black college. HBCU from 1956 until 1963. He supported his students who gradually became active in the civil rights movement. He became an advisor for SNCC and wrote a book, SNCC, The New Abolitionists. He also wrote for The Nation. He had tenure, had written two books. The other was The Southern Mystique and was one of the campus's most popular professors. He noted he was proud of all his students, author Alice Walker and founder and president of the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Elman, were probably the most famous. But his boss fired him for his activism. In 1964, he got a job at Boston University and joined the then small anti-war movement. Zen recalled the memorial service for James Cheney, Michael Schwerer, and Andrew Goodman that summer. They were three civil rights activists that were brutally beaten with chains and then riddled with bullets. Their bodies were found three weeks later after they had disappeared from Philadelphia, Mississippi. One of the movement's leaders, Bob Moses, spoke bitterly about the government sending troops to Vietnam for incomprehensible reasons. He held up a banner newspaper headline of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, but it was unwilling to send marshals to Mississippi to protect civil rights workers from inevitable violence. And now, three were dead. The Gulf of Tonkin incident, an alleged attack by North Vietnamese torpedo boats, was later disproven, but it was used to justify a rapid expansion of U.S. troops in Vietnam. Zinn had come to an anti-war position, mainly from an examination of Hiroshima and Royan, France, the last bombs he launched before the end of the campaign in Europe. He went on to become a leader of the anti-war movement, but those are stories for another day. Sadly, Zinn passed away from a heart attack on January 27, 2010. For the past of the past, I'm Harry Richardson. 
Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. Moving On is a new comedy worth seeing, mostly for its two leads, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, and The Monkey King, an animated kids movie with a largely Asian American cast where adults may want to leave the room. Evelyn, I need to talk to you. About what? I told him I was going to kill him. I could chat. And that was clip from the trailer for Moving On, written and directed by Paul Weitz. This is a pretty good film that is worth watching, mostly for the interaction of its two leads, Lily Tomlin as Evelyn and Jane Fonda as Claire. They play two lousy friends, in Evelyn's phrase, more commonly euphemized as estranged. Claire has returned to Los Angeles to go to the funeral of their mutual best friend, Joyce. After an amusing opening scene, which portrays Joyce as more concerned about her quirky than her adult daughter and typical indifferent teen grandkids, we get to our main story. After the burial at the reception, Claire walks right up to the grieving widower, Howard, Malcolm McDowell, and says, I'm going to kill you, and walks away, leaving him sputtering. She confines to Evelyn that she will kill Howard and enlists her help to purchase a gun. Evelyn is initially reluctant, goes along for reasons of her own, which come out later at their best friend's memorial service, where Howard is memorializing his spouse. Evelyn accidentally walks in behind him, stating, The way back from the bathroom is a labyrinth. She goes to the back of the room, and after a general toast to Joyce, Evelyn talks about her relationship with her old friend. Claire amusingly fails to get a gun. No surprise. California has fairly strict gun laws. Evelyn, though, has a neighbor in her retirement center that has a gun and connives to borrow it. We also meet her neighbor's grandson, who enjoyed wearing high heels at their last visit. Evelyn gives him some earrings. Sadly, that doesn't go down well with his parents. Claire, meanwhile, has run into her ex, Ralph, Richard Roundtree, best remembered by those of us of a certain age, for the leading role in Shaft. He's a dignified, well-off widower who still hasn't figured out why Claire broke up with him. Claire has several opportunities to kill Howard, which puts the audience in an awkward position. We sort of want to root for her, and at the same time we don't want to actually see her do it. This is a little of what Evelyn is also feeling, since she has her own score to settle with Howard. So the movie's conclusion can be considered as a happy but unlikely ending. All in all, a middling movie, mostly worth seeing because, well, how many more times will we get the chance to pair up these great actors, Tomlin and Fonda? who work so well together. Up next, an animated movie that seems more aimed at kids than adults. Names? Monkey King! This here is Stick, my trusty companion. This old geezer once told me, You don't belong here, outsider! And he was right! That was Glip from the trailer for The Monkey King, directed by Anthony Stacci. The movie's very loosely based on Journey to the West, a 16th century Chinese novel. The largely Asian-American cast is pretty convincing, and some of the animation is striking, but the pacing is just too frantic, and with the possible exception of Lin, voiced by Jolie Hong Rappaport, none of the characters are very sympathetic. But the movie isn't aimed at me, but at children. It's rated PG, so maybe too much animated violence for younger kids. Our story has an interesting premise. A monkey, Jimmy O'Yang, with glowing eyes, emerges from a rock with powers and ambitions that grow as he grows, until he decides on his main goal, to join the immortal gods above. This is partly a reaction to being rejected by a group of more average monkeys. He's supposed to learn his place as a pebble, 
and retreat like the others in the face of a local demon who occasionally comes out and grabs baby monkeys. He retreats and is ostracized by the tribe. He grows up away from the others, constantly honing his fighting skills in preparation for battling the demon. He is initially beaten, but his ego won't let him quit that easily, and he goes looking for the perfect weapon. In the old Chinese story, it reportedly has a more dignified name, but here it is just called Stick. In one of the more entertaining scenes of the movie, he manages to steal the stick from the Dragon King, Bowen Yang, who doesn't manage to come close to scary. He's too busy keeping himself moisturized. The Monkey King reluctantly picks up an assistant, Lin, after acquiring the stick. The Monkey King decides to kill a hundred demons to get the attention and acceptance of the gods. Said gods don't seem all that appealing. The head god seems absorbed in planning his next dinner party and has no real interest in the affairs of Earth. The others don't seem much better, but Monkey, after killing his 100, next has to search for a way to become immortal. Here, his assistant comes in handy. The journey is occasionally entertaining, but not really worth the time for us adults. It might be fun for the kids, though. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters were Charlie Bielowski and Greg Gabodski. Thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Carlin produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.